I'm Ruxandra Guidi, host of The Catch, a podcast from Foreign Policy and the Walton Family Foundation about the seafood we eat and the impact it can have on our world. This season, we'll hear how Norway is handling cod's changing migration patterns and what it says about fisheries in other parts of the world. Season three of The Catch is out now. Hey, it's Martine. A quick warning before we get started. Today's show deals with the sexual assault of a child, so please take care when and with whom you listen. This was the story that it felt like half the country was talking about and the other half thought was a hoax or a lie or couldn't be real. That's Elahe Azadi, our sometimes guest host, who today is here as a media reporter for The Post. And the story she's talking about is the story of a 10-year-old girl from Ohio. As the Indianapolis Star reported, this girl had been raped. She became pregnant and had sought out an abortion in Ohio in late June. But she couldn't get one. She was just over six weeks pregnant, and Ohio had a six-week abortion ban, one that it kicked in hours after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. So she had to go to Indiana for an abortion, where it's still legal for now. And this story was just really horrific, and in some ways, to some people, just unbelievable. The president mentions it in a speech against abortion restrictions. And then the Washington Post fact checker expressed skepticism about it. And this just kicks off a frenzied response. Well, I certainly hope it's not true, because the idea that it is is so horrifying to each and every one of us. The first version was a lie. Everything is partisan propaganda and kind of believe nothing at first. Maybe that's the takeaway. But in the middle of all of that noise, The whole time, there was a group of local journalists who were just digging and looking for the case. And one of those people was Bethany Bruner. I'm Bethany Bruner. I'm the public safety reporter for the Columbus Dispatch, which is part of the USA Today network for Gannett. She and her colleagues at the Indy Star, their sister paper, had been scouring public records. She had been making calls and then One morning, she looks at the local court docket, which she does every morning, and sees the listing for a man to be arraigned for a rape of a child. So she quickly makes it over to the courthouse, and the courtroom is filled with attorneys and and detectives and spectators for the other cases, but she's the only reporter there, and she kind of can't believe it. And I I kept kind of like looking behind me and like glancing behind me at the door, like, okay, well, somebody's going to show up like rape of a child. That's a case that, you know, they they care about anyways. But come on, like, is nobody else putting two and two together that this could be the case? Soon it dawns on her that it's going to be her. You know, it, it was a bit of a shock to me, but, you know, I just kept doing the reporting that I know to do. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, July 28th. 
Today, how local journalists got the first big scoop of the post-Roe era, even as many people doubted it was true. And what the story tells us about the role of local journalists in informing all of us about the consequences of the end of Roe. So let's go back to the beginning. Where does the story start? So the day that the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, eliminating the constitutional right to an abortion, Bro Crift, who is the executive editor of the Indianapolis Star, is reading these stories from inside abortion clinics of patients finding out in real time they can no longer receive the procedure. And so he's reading this coverage and thinking about what to assign his reporters in Indianapolis. We have to make this real. We have to illuminate this. This just can't be a number. It can't, numbers don't mean anything to people, but real humans who are impacted by it, that's what we need. And so very soon after that, Sherry Radofsky, a longtime health reporter for the Indy Star. Been here for, oh, I don't know, 17 years covering health um, and has relationships um, throughout, uh, you know, health industry and the medical industry. She calls up the people she knows and she speaks with an OBGYN who has been a longtime source of hers and someone she's grown to trust. And this doctor tells her this story that's pretty horrific. Uh, the doctor's name is Dr. Caitlin Bernard. And she said that she had received a call just a few days before from a child abuse doctor in Ohio saying that she had a patient who is 10, six weeks and three days pregnant therefore could not get an abortion in Ohio, which, because of Rose Fall, now had a six-week abortion ban. Could Dr. Bernard see her? And she said yes. And soon after that, the child was in her care, and Dr. Bernard performed an abortion on her. This anecdote was one of several in a story the Indy Star published on July 1st that sort of laid out the consequences of Rose Fall and how people in Indiana were impacted even as Indiana itself is considering new abortion restrictions. So so this was the origin story of that news that I think so many of us heard around the country, right? Like this case of the 10-year-old, this is where it came from, from this conversation between a health reporter and, and a doctor. Yeah, that's how the Indy Star found it. And what was striking to me was that perhaps the only way the Indy Star would have known that story was precisely because they had this reporter who's been on the beat for so long and knows who to talk to, knows who to call. And this doctor trusted her enough, that reporter enough, to tell her this story. And as a media reporter, I mean, I think that you were probably paying attention to how much this story was picked up nationally and and how it really captured a lot of people's attention. Can you talk about the immediate reaction to it? And I think it's not surprising that that for so many people hearing this news was really horrific, but it was also complicated. Yeah. And I actually saw this story on my Twitter feed before it became national news and blew up and went viral in a way that it did and many people came to learn about. I I saw this and I was shocked by it. But then on July 8th, President Biden mentions it specifically, mentions this girl and this anecdote in a a White House speech. Just last week, it was reported that a 10-year-old girl was a rape victim in Ohio, 10 years old. And she was forced to have to travel out of the state to Indiana 
to seek to terminate the presidency and maybe save her life. And once he does that, that kicked off a whole media frenzy. I remember that speech, and I remember just how angry Biden was when he was talking about it. It was a very palpable sense of outrage. It it really felt like this story of this one child captured something about how so many people were reacting to the overturning of, of Roe v. Wade. Yeah, I feel like he was indignant. It was really, um, he, he was quite angry. And he, he kept saying, you know, imagine being that little girl. Imagine being that little girl. Just, I'm, I'm serious, just imagine being that little girl, 10 years old. It, it really was such an extreme example in some ways, but it also underscored those sorts of situations that perhaps these laws are not taking into account, that Ohio has an exemption for you know, protecting the life of the mother, but how that is actually enacted and plays out. Does this girl fall under that category? And on top of it, just the sheer horror of of the underlying story. Like this is just a horrible thing to have to think about that this happened and that any any child would be in this situation. But at the same time, I think a lot of people had a different reaction, right? Like there was this real undercurrent I don't even know if it's an undercurrent, overcurrent of, <laughs> of skepticism and pushback of saying, well, how do we know that this story is actually real? Yeah. And the moment that hit sort of a fever pitch or really took off was precisely because Biden cited it in a speech where he's speaking against abortion restrictions. Kind of put on notice a lot of people who are opposed to abortion rights and expanding abortion rights. And so there's two things happening there, I think. I think on the one hand, feeling like this is so unbelievable. Surely there's going to be another news story about it. Surely there's going to be a police investigation. Surely there must be something out there beyond this doctor saying that this had happened. And also you just have like people honestly questioning it. And then you have the spectrum down to like bad faith actors and people just straight up saying this, this isn't real. Like there's no way this is real. Basically, we're being asked by the left-wing media to take the word of an activist abortionist that this whole situation is true. And I'm skeptical, to say the very least. We also get the Wall Street Journal publishing an editorial titled An Abortion Story Too Good to Confirm. And there's two personalities on Fox News saying, we're looking for this, we don't find it, and suggesting it's a hoax. You would think the story of a sexual abuser roaming free assaulting 10-year-olds would raise quite a few concerns in small town Ohio, but no one seems to be doing anything about it. No one even knows anything about it. And, you know, there's a spectrum. The Washington Post fact checker also looked into the story and cautioned that it relied on a single source and tried to find more and couldn't. And you just have this like spectrum of skepticism essentially on this story. What was the reaction of the reporters and editors at the Indianapolis Star to the fact that there was such a polarized response to this story. In some ways, the journalists kind of kept their head down. They weren't getting wrapped up in having to or trying to defend the reporting. At the same time, for them, it was a reproductive health story, potentially a crime story. It was not a political story. That's not really what they were thinking about it as or approaching it as. 
we weren't thinking of it as a political football that people like to toss back and forth to to either tear someone down or bring them up based on what what their end game is. That's what Bro Criff, the Indie Star's executive editor, told me. We're just trying to tell a story uh, to make people understand, you know, to report the news. It's not even a story. Report the news and make people understand the consequences. But because there was so much national attention they started to dig in deeper and to see what they could find out about a criminal investigation. And, and how did they do that? What was the process that they, that they took? So Biden made his White House speech on a Friday, July 8th. And that weekend, the Indy Star's investigations editor, who, by the way, he was one of the reporters who broke the story about Larry Nassar's abuse of USA Gymnastics participants. So he has some experience in these kinds of investigations. Yeah, he has experience and and he would know the difficulty in uncovering something like this. So that weekend, he takes it upon himself to start looking at public records in Ohio. And he quickly finds five cases that hadn't really been reported in the media of sex abuse of, of children. And so he and his colleagues in Indy Star are looking at cases and they're starting to zero in on central Ohio as the place that perhaps this criminal investigation would surface. But in the course of that reporting, they uncovered that there had been 50 complaints of sex abuse and rape against girls under 15 that had been filed with the Columbus Police Department since May 9th. Hmm. So this idea that we can't find this, there's no such case. I mean, there are so many cases of this type of abuse that go unreported, that go unreported. And these were just the ones they found in public records. What they also suspect is that is an undercount because there are restrictions, confidentiality restrictions when certain people like social workers and doctors report sexual abuse of minors and you know, they're looking at this, they're finding these cases, they can see that the specific one they're looking for is not among these. And it turns out it it was among the others that were had this restriction on them. So in terms of this larger number of cases that they found, that goes back to the the point or the argument that that some people have been making about this one case that like, if this were true, we would have heard about it. This would have been reported already because, in fact, so many of these kinds of circumstances happen frequently and they don't get reported on. And it's actually much more common than people realize. And there's no reason to assume that we know how often these kinds of things happen to to children. Yeah. And it's an awful thing to to have to report about and write about. But it's also a very difficult thing to report on as far as getting information. And that's something that the reporters at the Indy Star and soon the Columbus Dispatch would discover and see firsthand. It's something they kind of knew already, but they could see through how this particular story unfolded. Why? Cases like this don't always, you know, we don't always hear about it as police are investigating. And in fact, the Ohio attorney general, who is the top prosecutor in the state, he had been spending the week after Biden's speech going on Fox News and speaking to USA Today. And just a heads up, the audio of this sounds a little distorted. We have regular contact with prosecutors and local police and sheriffs, not a whisper anywhere. My office runs the state crime lab. Any case like this, you're going to have a rape kit, you're going to have biological evidence, and you would be looking for DNA. There is no case request for analysis that looks anything like this. 
I know every cop mm-hmm. and prosecutor in the state, everyone would be turning over every rock, looking everywhere for a suspected rapist. I can't find evidence that an investigation even exists. So this is the climate wow. in which these reporters are looking for a case. Yeah. Um, you're having the top prosecutor in the state saying there's not a whisper of it anywhere. Huh. So so then so then how did they find it? Like talk me through how that process continued of winnowing down which case was the actual case with this 10-year-old. Yeah. In some ways it was just like classic shoe leather journalism. You know, it wasn't like some secret source like Deep Throat meeting you in a parking garage and handing you a file or, you know, I, I just think it's like a, such a good example of how journalism works when it's done well and just methodically. Mm-hmm. So by Monday morning, the Monday after Biden's speech, Bro Crift is talking with the Columbus Dispatch editor. And the reason he's talking to him is because these papers all belong to Gannett, which is the largest newspaper chain in the country. They have over 100 newspapers and their journalists often work together because, you know, the news doesn't always abide by strict geographic boundaries. So mm-hmm. Bro is talking with his counterpart at the Columbus Dispatch and they're talking about, you know, maybe we should team up. And by that point, that's when they loop in Bethany Bruner, the public safety reporter at the Columbus Dispatch. I got a call from a colleague at the Indy Star saying, hey, we we think this may be tied to Columbus or central Ohio what do you think? Can, can you help us track this down or, or see what you can find? Bethany decides to do what she always does. She calls up people she knows. She knows the agencies. She knows who to call at these agencies to try and find find this case. So I was like, yeah, sure. Let me, let me make some calls. Let me see what I can dig up, um, work some sources and see, see where we get. And, you know, even though she's going down her list of who to call, it wasn't like she was getting immediate answers or very clear answers. You know, I was making calls to law enforcement sources all over Franklin County, trying to figure out uh, what agency this may have fallen to in terms of jurisdiction. And what I was getting was a lot of it's not us. And so that, you know, process of elimination, we were getting down to just a few that I hadn't heard back from when I saw the um, arraignment list on Wednesday morning which it lists all of the cases that are going to be arraigned, um, you know, the charges, setting bail, that sort of mm-hmm. thing. And she just does that as, you know, she does that as part of her routine. The clerk at the court knows her, you know, and she's scanning it. And one listing stands out to her. I happen to see one for rape and the specification for a child under the age of 13. It's like, well, you know, maybe th- this could be it. Let me pull the some more information through the affidavit of probable cause. And that said that she was 10. And the way she even got that affidavit, you know, it's not an easy thing. It's not like a, you know, a website that has everything you need right at your fingertips. She had to call the clerk. The clerk had to scan it, Mm -hmm. the document to her and email it to her. And so she's reading it and sees that. And then that's when she realizes, I need to make it over to the courthouse. And that arraignment was that morning, correct? That morning, like an hour. In fact, she gets this affidavit around 8 a.m. And she gets to the courthouse and it's 8.55 a.m. So Mm. she's getting there fast. (laughs) There's not a lot of time to waste. But, you know, in talking with her, she didn't seem like she was super stressed about it. Like, it's just, you know, what you have to do when, when this is the type of reporting that you do. 
After the break, what Bethany learned from being the only journalist in the courtroom that day. We'll be right back. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts. So Bethany gets to the courthouse and she's waiting for the doors to open. The judge is running late. And finally, the one that she's there for is called. And there's about 20 other people in the room. And it doesn't seem like anyone else really beyond detective attorney, you know, that sort of thing is there for that case. And so Bethany is sitting there and then she hears this detective from the Columbus Police Department testify. And he lays out in detail that you know, while the world was doubting whether this case existed, was looking for it, mm. there was an investigation that began June 22nd, two days before Roe v. Wade was overturned. Columbus police were notified of this girl's pregnancy. Mm. And the detective testifies on June 30th, she received a medical abortion in Indianapolis, which completely aligns with what Dr. Bernard told the Indy Star. He also testifies that police interviewed this girl and that she identified a 27-year-old man as her attacker. And then he testifies that on July 12th, which is the day that the attorney general of Ohio said, you know, this case doesn't exist anywhere, that on that very same day, police arrested the suspect. Oh, wow. Wow. So she she got everything. I mean, she got the whole story from from finding and being at that arraignment. She got the entire story confirmed that there was an investigation and it aligns with everything before. And as she's hearing this, you know, she has her phone. She's in a group chat with her editors and other reporters, and she's just sending these updates. And Bro Criff, the Indie Star executive editor, he described it to me like, that scene in the movies when the journalist gets the document that unlocks everything. I remember thinking in my head for about 30 seconds, 20 seconds, like A plus B plus C, she's got it. Like, she's got it. And this is the thing that everybody's, where is this person? And she's hearing coming testimony on the record, like, to connect it. So what happened after that and after Bethany's piece came out? So Bethany, along with a colleague at the Dispatch and one at the Indie Star, they write this story, they publish it, and within 24 hours, it's viewed 1.5 million times, which is a lot if you are familiar with local journalism and their websites. And and it just like lands like a bomb in some Hmm. ways because the story had already gone so viral and and so clearly contradicts all of the doubts and, and people saying this didn't exist. And what was the reaction from all of the, the doubters? I mean, the people who said very publicly that that this was not a true story. So there were very few, if any, apologies. The attorney general of Ohio said something to the effect of, 
you know, it's good that this suspected rapist is off the street. But today he has released a statement writing, quote, my heart aches for the pain suffered by this young child. I am grateful for the diligent work of the Columbus Police Department in securing a confession and getting a rapist off the street. There was no recognition of what he had said previously. And, you know, then you had places like the Wall Street Journal's editorial board. They they did write a new editorial. They amended the previous one. The fact checker at The Washington Post did the same. And then, you know, over on Fox News, attention started to turn on to Dr. Bernard and questioning whether, well, actually, did she break the law? And also turning attention to the suspect and his immigration status. He shouldn't have been in this country in the first place. This 10-year-old girl would never have been raped if we only were enforcing our laws at the border. Congressman Jim Jordan, who had tweeted a skeptical article before and called this another lie, deleted the tweet quietly. Why'd you delete the tweet? Well, because we learned that this illegal alien did this heinous crime. Um, so we deleted the tweet. By the way, the suspect has since pleaded not guilty to two counts of rape. But hmm. at any rate, I didn't really hear anyone apologize in those spaces among people who had just straight up said this wasn't real. And what do you make of that? What do you make of this this whole story or the way, the, the lengths that people had to go through to for it to be believed? I, I guess the, the main thing that kind of speaks to me is that when faced with a real-life consequence of these laws— how people then responded to that tells us a lot about how this whole debate around abortion is going to play out. And if this horrific story doesn't open up a conversation around, you know, reconsidering how some of these laws are enacted, then that sort of tells me about, you know, how this is going to go. And also just like that this story that is involving real people how it can become politicized in such a charged environment when we are talking about such a charged issue. Like abortion is an issue, but we're talking about real people mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. And so I just wonder whether the humanity of some of these stories, will they have an impact or what role will they play in the broader debate around abortion and also the media's role in all of this? Yeah. Well, well and also there's the question of these stories getting out there in the first place. I mean, the fact that it seems like this process was really difficult and, and required a lot of time and attention by multiple very talented journalists to be able to get the facts out. So so what do you think, when, when we think about trying to cover the implications of our new post-Roe world, how are those challenges placed on the shoulders of local journalists? Yeah, I... I think there are many challenges placed on their shoulders that it's going to fall to them to figure a lot of these stories out or just confirm them enough and bring them to light. And they're navigating really difficult circumstances. When we're talking about an abortion story, we're talking about a few things and a few things come into play. One, it's a medical story, which means that doctors and physicians may be the primary, if only sources of information that we're going to get. And doctors are bound by a law, HIPAA protecting patient confidentiality. Mm -hmm. That means that there, there isn't a lot of information, specific details that they can provide to journalists that perhaps journalists could use to corroborate the story further. They, they just can't. It's breaking the law. So there's that element of it. And then when we're talking about someone who's underage, a child and child sex abuse, then we're talking about 
police investigations that the police themselves are actively trying not to make public. And that's something that Bethany soon learned after after her reporting that there were many people within the Columbus Police Department itself who had no idea that this investigation was underway until the man was arrested. And, you know, from my experience, these cases, detectives like to play them very close to the vest. They want to protect these children just as much as anybody else does in terms of making sure their identity is kept private. They are dealing with something that most of us can only imagine going through, um, particularly in this case, because she became pregnant. You know, that it's incredibly challenging. You know, you, you have a minor who has had her life changed because of this. And they, they really just try to keep that close. And we as reporters try to make sure that we're doing our job to protect that victim as well. In the age of Google, you know, having your name out there, it follows you around forever. And she's 10, you know, and I think that gets lost sometimes in the shuffle is she's 10. And there's this bigger concern now because of the way this story unfolded and specifically the pressure that was placed on Dr. Bernard, the Indianapolis OBGYN. The Indiana AG, the Indiana Attorney General, has said he's going to investigate her for possibly breaking the law. By, by giving this child an abortion. Perhaps by not, he, he inferred perhaps she didn't properly report it. Subsequent reporting shows that she did, as required, um, or whether she broke HIPAA and her employer has looked into it and said that she didn't. And because she mentioned to this reporter exactly. broadly that there was this case that she had recently um, worked on that the abortion that she should that she gave to a child. Yes, and and Dr. Bernard has moved to potentially sue for defamation the Attorney General wow. of Indiana wow. over this. So she becomes a central national figure and all these other people around the country are now calling her or, you know, like talking about her on Fox News. And that's a lot of pressure on a doctor. And I think and has that potential chilling effect for other doctors who are looking at this and saying, you know, if I speak openly about the way that these new laws and and um, overturning Roe v. Wade is starting to affect my patients or here are the things that I'm seeing that they could also potentially be sued or investigated just for talking openly about what they're experiencing as doctors. Yeah, and that's of great concern to journalists who will have to rely on these doctors as sources of information. Doctors will be perhaps very reluctant to speak to media now after how this all unfolded. But if the doctor hadn't told the reporter in Indianapolis, none of us would have known about this. Mm -hmm. And then the other concern that is big here is, you know, we talk about how local journalists, because they're on the ground, they know the sources, they know who to call, they're physically there, they have these daily routines, we're able to uncover this whole story. But the fact is, there just aren't as many local journalists around yeah. across the country as there used to be. A recent study found that one third of newspapers that existed two decades ago are not going to be around by 2025. Hmm. And so when we're talking about you know, local news being so important, there are many places around the country where the, a Bethany doesn't exist. Um, and even Gannett, which is the largest newspaper chain in the country, has seen cutbacks since the pandemic, since a merger in 2019. Um, and they say they're still committed to the story and that they're 
still subjected to the same forces as the rest of the especially newspaper industry. But I think this whole story, the way it unfolded, has left me with a real life tangible example of not just the value of local journalism, but the kinds of stories that we might not hear about Mm -hmm. if there aren't reporters like this around or there might be some, but they just don't have the time to to run it down the way Bethany did. Yeah, because I think it's so easy to think of the abortion debate and and the changing situation of abortion of abortion in our country as a national story, right? This is a story about the Supreme Court. This is a story about Congress and what they're doing. But that, in fact, like the people who are best positioned in many cases to cover the reality of what's happening with abortion right now are people who, as you say, have those sources in their communities and have relationships and know where to look to find these first stories of of how this is playing out in real people's lives in a way that is very rare and getting rarer. Yeah, and I think the word that comes to my mind is trust. Hmm. You know, it's not like you can be a reporter on the other side of the country and call up someone you've never spoken to before and ask them, hey, tell me about this horrible thing that you had to go through or this really difficult case that you had to see. I mean, sometimes that happens and we get those stories, but oftentimes, you know, there needs to be trust and it goes both ways. These doctors and these patients have to be able to trust the reporter and that trust is developed over time. It's also developed because these people are present in those communities. And without that, you know, trust that's built at the local level, it's going to be hard for these stories to surface. Elahe, thank you so much for sharing the story. Thanks for having me. Elahe Azadi is a media reporter for The Post. This story was produced and mixed by Renny Svernovsky with help from Natalie Bettendorf. It was edited by Robin Amer and Avi Silk. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. And before we go, I do have a favor to ask. We want to learn more about your listening habits and how we can serve you better. We have a survey running right now, and we'd love to hear from you. It shouldn't take much more than five minutes to complete, and you can do that at WashingtonPost.com slash podcast survey. Again, that's WashingtonPost.com slash podcast survey. When you're done, you can enter a sweepstakes to win a $100 gift card. We really appreciate your help, and thank you so much. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.